0: What really happened is brought to you by Swell Investing. The days of turning a profit at any cost are over. More and more, people are investing with their values in mind and fighting the good fight. Love it. Don't think you can make money by doing the right thing? Take a look at Swell Investing. Swell is bringing impact investing—I didn't know that was a thing—to the people with their easy-to-use platform and low-minimum investment. Take Swell's Clean Water portfolio, for example— Our demand for clean water will outpace supply within the next few decades, yet we currently waste trillions of gallons every year. Our water infrastructure and treatment methods will play a huge role in meeting the growing demand for water. Who would think this is a a business advertisement? Let's face it, resources are diminishing and our population is growing. It's a simple issue of supply and demand. Investing your money in companies, improving access to water, and streamlining our systems means that you are investing in fixing the problem. They are responding to demand by increasing supply. Every company in all seven of Swell's portfolios is doing good work just like this, creating a profitable solution to a global issue. The companies are all publicly held and innovating in industries like renewable energy and zero waste. And so far, business is booming. Impact investing and socially responsible companies are making serious money moves beating out the S&P 500 for the past 25 years. Ready to dive in? Head to www.swellinvesting.com slash wrh, and they'll put $50 in your account when you make your first investment. Wait, don't fast forward. I really want to keep the momentum going with our contributors. We have a show here about storytelling and history, and I really do thank you, the listener, can become a part of our team. This isn't some ploy, but instead a chance for me to get your opinion and take on the stories that I tell. You just got to go to jankspod.com slash contributors. Also be sending free t-shirts soon. This podcast is produced by Dwayne the Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gowerts, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence13. What really happened is written and hosted by yours truly, the world's most flexible documentary filmmaker. Please let me know what you think on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Andrew Jenks. It's 1972, sunny California. A guy in his mid-twenties picks up a buddy from the airport, and there's a problem. Nothing related to the traveling, but the two have a new company, and they can't figure out what to call it. What raises the stakes here is that the product they're selling is actually decent. So the fellows are driving around and have different ideas, but so far... Nothing really exciting. The friend on the passenger side, who was picked up at the airport, looks out on the massive highway they're on. He's in a very different place than he was only hours ago. He had spent the weekend at one of his favorite places, a 220-acre farm called All One Farm, 40 miles outside of Portland. His friend, Robert, had a rich uncle who was a Swiss finance guy. This Swiss finance guy owned this piece of land and let his nephew, Robert, take it over. So Robert turned it into a commune. There's a main house, a large barn, a garden shed, and people tend to sleep all over. Everyone is meant to chip in, but otherwise enjoy. Enjoy the apple farm, enjoy each other, enjoy the LSD. Now, only a few hours later, Robert is still at the commune and his wannabe entrepreneur friend, Is stuck in a car on Highway 85 having to think of a title for the new company he started with his buddy. All the ideas still sound sort of bland. Then he suggests the name Apple. Not necessarily what comes to mind when you think of a computer company, but Steve Wozniak, the guy driving and fellow owner of the company, thinks about it. He looks over at his passenger. They'd go with Apple computers. Steve Jobs later said, It sounded fun, spirited, and not intimidating. Apple took the edge off the word computer. Wozniak added, After trying to think of better and more technical names, both Jobs and I realized that Apple was a good fit. They also liked that Apple would appear before Atari in the phone book. But wait, to kind of wrap my head around this, I'm thinking. Nike is named after the Greek goddess of victory. Walmart and McDonald's are both in some ways named after the people who started the companies. You're telling me a commune in which Steve Jobs liked to stay, where he'd be dropping acid, is what led to the decision that he'd call his company Apple? The company which, among other things, became the first trillion-dollar company in history? Without that farm, is Apple called Apple? And then the real question... Without the acid, is there even a company to call Apple? Steve Jobs would later say to a New York Times journalist that, "'Taking LSD was a profound experience, "'one of the most important things in my life. "'LSD shows you that there's another side to the coin, "'and you can't remember it when it wears off, "'but you know it. "'It reinforced my sense of what was important, "'creating great things instead of making money, "'putting things back into the stream of history "'and of human consciousness, as much as I could. When I read this and thought more about it, I was, you know, thinking, here's Steve Jobs, hailed as our modern-day Thomas Edison, and Jobs himself says LSD was one of the most profound experiences of his life. I'm thinking, have I fully appreciated or even understood what this actually means? If Jobs said going to a specific piece of farmland in Belgium was one of the most profound experiences of his life for no other reason than he stood on such farmland and found it to be profound, then I could see Belgium's tourism skyrocketing. Take that, mannequin piss. Anyway, Jobs never said anything about Belgian farmland. But he did say something about LSD. Once to the New York Times reporter, and another time when the U.S. government had to do a background check on him. They wanted to use some of his equipment at Pixar that could render information from reconnaissance flights and satellites. Years later, it came out that Steve had said, I used LSD from approximately 1972 to 1974. Throughout that period of time, I used the LSD approximately 10 to 15 times. I would ingest the LSD on a sugar cube or in a hard form of gelatin. Online, you can find endless lists of the most famous people who've dropped acid. I've read many headlines like famous people who loved a trip on LSD. And there, Steve Jobs is at number one. But there's no real insight. What most consider the most comprehensive biography on jobs by Walter Isaacson is aptly titled Steve Jobs. The book touches on the acid and LSD a bit, which we'll get to. And I wanted to ask Isaacson about this. The best-selling biographer emailed me right back and said he was going to pass on the interview. I emailed back, appealing to his greater angels, but nothing. Damn it, Walter. Luckily, I did track down someone who had a closer tie to Steve and Acid. I'm interested on the impact LSD had on Steve's life. Apple is a -a once-in-a-generation company. We know that Steve Jobs is essential to this. We know Steve Jobs said LSD played an important role in his life. So how much of a role did it play? Or what kind of role? One of overall inspiration, or one that created a new approach to seeing life? Or are there specific lines that we could even draw between Steve's LSD use and Apple products? Or, perhaps, perhaps, this could really be a conspiracy theory, that Jobs using LSD during his early years as a computer whiz is actually a classic Jobs PR play, that he never actually dropped acid. But saying he did was a way to solidify his brand, solidify the high school dropout, counterculture CEO narrative that Jobs himself was quite proud to cultivate. Without LSD, does Apple ever exist? What really happened when Steve Jobs was dropping acid? It's hard to understand the impact LSD can have on someone, much less understand with any great precision. I figured I had to first see the moving pieces that gave Steve Jobs the chance to do what he did in the first place. Then I could see where the LSD fit in. I see a picture of Steve Jobs' childhood home, a single-floor 1950s ranch-style house on Chris Drive in Los Altos, California, a suburban neighborhood. The Jobs' family moved to the house when Steve was in seventh grade. It's 1976 and Steve's dad, Paul Jobs, about 30 years old, is watching football on a Sunday. There's three bedrooms, but the action for our purposes are on the other side of the small home, in the attached garage. Paul knew it was coming. His son Steve walks inside from the garage. Dad, can we borrow the TV? Dad almost always says yes. Paul and Steve carry the TV to the other side of the small home. Paul looks up. His garage used to be packed with car parts and pieces. Paul now sees Steve and the Apple team, all five or so of them. Walter Isaacson wrote that Paul Jobs, quote, put in a long workbench, hung a schematic of the computer on the new plasterboard wall he built, and set up rows of labeled drawers for the components. He also built a burn box bathed in heat lamps so the computer boards could be tested by running overnight at high temperatures. When there was the occasional eruption of temper, an occurrence not uncommon around his son, Paul would impart some of his calm. What's the matter, he'd say. You got a feather up your ass? Steve's mom, Clara, was also encouraging. As an ex-girlfriend of Steve pointed out, his mom just wanted him to be healthy and he would be making weird pronouncements like, I'm a fruitarian. I will only eat leaves picked by virgins in the moonlight. John Markoff is a journalist and best-selling author. He wrote the book, What the Dormhouse Said, How the 60s Counterculture Shaped the Personal Computer Industry. Markoff said, The 1960s were a time of extreme upheaval. The Vietnam War and the draft, the advent of female-controlled contraception, and the campaign for civil rights all contributed to the counterculture. Bono, yep, Bono, said something interesting as well. He said, the people who invented the 21st century were pot-smoking, sandal-wearing hippies from the West Coast like Steve, because they saw differently. The hierarchical systems of the East Coast, England, Germany, and Japan do not encourage this different thinking. The 60s produced an anarchic mindset that is great for imagining a world not yet in existence. Markov added that the concept of the personal computer as a device to empower individuals was a purely West Coast idea the East Coast didn't get anything but corporate technology. In the early to mid-1960s, there was a Bay Area-based research project known as the International Foundation for Advanced Study. The study group led more than 350 people through acid trips for research purposes. Some of them were important pioneers in the development of computing. LSD, computers, and counterculture on all levels surrounded Steve's upbringing. Jobs put it more simply, I came of age at a magical time. Our consciousness was raised by Zen and also by LSD. He lived by this rich dichotomy, said Walter Isaacson. This fusion of flower power and processor power, enlightenment and technology, was embodied by Steve Jobs as he meditated in the mornings, audited physics classes at Stanford, worked night at Atari, and dreamed of starting his own business. Paul and Clara's house on Chris Drive in Los Altos, California, is where one-third of the venture capital from the United States comes every year. Steve Jobs knew it. Growing up, I got inspired by the history of it, he said. That made me want to be a part of it. So up until a few months ago, I never really shaved. My father is British, so while he taught me the meaning of life and how to read books, he never taught me how to shave. And then I met a woman. She liked me, and I liked her. But when we kissed, oh yeah, we kissed, my five o'clock shadow hurt her skin. I'd create like a red mark or a rash. It wasn't cool. And for the first time since hitting puberty in the fourth grade while living in Belgium, ugh, talk about a story, I had to shave. So I used Harry's. They have clean, smooth razors. Seriously, I tried some other razors at the gym and I left with blood pouring down my face. Harry's made me feel, I don't know, like nice and clean afterwards. And if I'm not going to be using them for myself, I likely will get some for my British father. Harry's are ready to gift. Sets come in a handsome gift box. They start at just $10 and it's 100% quality guaranteed. If you're getting it for a special someone and he doesn't love it, returns are quick and hassle-free. As a special offer for fans of our show, we've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off any shave set, including our limited edition holiday sets. I've always wanted a limited edition. When you go to harrys.com W-R-H, plus you'll get free shipping. This offer is for new and returning customers and is only available for the holidays. Each Harry's shaving set comes with an ergonomic weighted handle with an option to engrave. German-engineered five-blade cartridges that provide a close, comfortable shave. Oh, that's what it was. Foaming shave gel for a rich lather. The foaming shave I actually really, really didn't A travel cover to protect your blades. A handsome holiday gift box. Or if you just want something for yourself, sounds like me, redeem a Harry's trial offer to experience the quality of shave before committing. Get your holiday shopping done early. Free shipping ends on December 12th, so act now. Go to harrys.com slash wrh to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That is harrys.com slash wrh. After Steve and Steve came up with the title of the company, and while working on that order in the garage, there were a handful of people. When Paul Jobs looked up at the Apple team that night, he was looking at some version of Jobs' sister, Jobs' friend from college, Daniel Kotke, and Kotke's girlfriend. As I read more about this time of Steve's life, Daniel Kotke kept coming up. Daniel was somebody Steve met back at Reed College. They were buddies and bonded over spiritual books and LSD. They hitchhiked out west, backpacked around India, and slept wherever would get them to the next morning. Daniel's fascinating because he's one of the few people that has actually done acid with Jobs and worked with him at Apple. I tracked him down. He was nice enough to hop on the phone, although warned me to keep the interview on track.
1: You should tell me how much time. (laughs) Because I can, I can talk for a long time. I'll just run on. I mean, if you want me to, like, kind of, I don't know. Anyway, of course, I brought some blotter acid with me on our trip to India in case there was a certain circumstance, but never got used. In fact, Uh, it's still in my wallet.
0: (laughs) Still? Wait, really? (laughs) Yeah. I know. It's funny. Daniel remains serious about using the drug.
1: Highly valuable. I, I'm in the same camp as Steve. It, it wakens you up to uh, consciousness, to a spiritual experience. You know, you could meditate for many years, but uh, we're all so impatient. I really think psychedelic exploration is a birthright of human beings. However, you know, I don't make a religion out of it.
0: John Markoff from The New York Times once wrote, Jobs said there were things about him that people who had not tried psychedelics, even people who knew him well, including his wife, could never understand. Jobs would hold his LSD use as a badge of honor. Trip Hawkins is the founder of Electronic Arts. He was also one of the very first Apple employees.
2: There was this time where I'm just sitting at my desk working and he, he uh, pops over and he says, hey, Tripp, have you ever taken LSD? And I, and I said, no. And he said, I thought so. And then, he, and then he walks away. And it was my interpretation of what that meant, that, OK, he uh, has just been in a meeting with somebody else and, and he's not, he didn't get what he wanted because somebody cited arguments that I'd made. And my arguments were logical and analytically sound and rational. And Steve's Steve's being impulsive and instinctive and intuitive and brilliant. And my logic apparently is kind of in the way. <laughs> that's what I think. That's what I think produced this because he was just coming by to tweak me because he was obviously frustrated about something that had happened.
0: For those who haven't tried LSD, people who have will sometimes say the experience is near impossible to articulate, that tripping on acid is something you have to do to understand. Dr. Elizabeth Hartney, a professor and director of the Center of Health and Leadership and Research at Royal Roads University, defines getting high on acid or LSD as, quote, something that's also known as an acid trip or psychedelic experience, and is technically termed LSD intoxication. During this period of intoxication, users experience a wide variety of effects, most often visual and other sensory distortions, changes to thought process, intense emotions, including euphoria, and occasionally, for some people, surprising new insights. LSD is typically used for recreational and social reasons more than for self-medication. However, some people believe that the effects of hallucinogens help them gain insight into themselves, their lives, and the nature of the universe, and even that it helps them to access greater awareness of spirituality. There can obviously be different reactions to LSD. Handled the wrong way, taken by somebody that shouldn't, and there's an endless list of things that can go wrong. I spoke with Maya Salovitz. She's an author and journalist, and wrote the book Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction.
3: I want to make a distinction here between psychedelics and say drugs like alcohol and opioids and and stimulants. Uh, Psychedelic drugs are different in that they really don't allow you to escape your problems. And so this is why you never hear about LSD addiction, for example. Um, People do not compulsively use psychedelics despite negative consequences, which is the definition of addiction, very often. As I just said, Some people can get addicted to anything, but a lot of times psychedelics will show you really dark stuff. And if you're trying to escape from really dark stuff, that is exactly what you do not want. Um, And so psychedelics need to be sort of bracketed out of this category of drug that uh, is really way too broad.
0: Steve Jobs was there at the epicenter of the LSD lifestyle during the second half of America's 21st century. As Jobs' mentor and LSD guru, Timothy Leary, coined during the 60s, turn on, tune in, and drop out. But I still didn't have a real feel for what Steve's actual experiences with Acid were. No sense of the role it played in his life. Before moving forward, I wanted to consider, did Jobs really take LSD to the point it made that much of a difference? Or could it be that he knew emphasizing these experiences Would help his brand. In fact, before Jobs spent any money on the production of Apple II, he first hired Regis McKenna, the top publicist in Silicon Valley at the time. Steve wanted to know how to make computers sound fun, exciting, sexy, and above all else, personable. And Jobs became a master at this, a master at telling a good story. Think of the magical product launches. As Inc. writer Carmine Gallo pointed out, A good story and nearly every successful Hollywood movie follows the three-act structure. Setup, conflict, and resolution. The brain loves novelty. It gets bored easily and craves something surprising and new. Jobs was famous for adding one more thing at the end of his keynotes. That was his version of the twist you expect to find in a movie. In the 2007 iPhone presentation, he put the twist at the beginning. Jobs never introduced a product without a short, simple summary that described the product in one sentence. Consider it the headline that anchors the story, the catchy title that makes you want to read or hear more. Every great story has a villain or a conflict in need of a resolution. In the 2007 iPhone keynote, Jobs showed several competing smartphones and pointed out their weaknesses. It's easy to forget how funny Jobs could be on stage. He elicited a laugh from the audience 51 times during one keynote. During the demo of the Maps feature, Jobs placed a prank call to a Starbucks location, ordering 4,000 lattes before hanging up. It's also important to remember how Steve oftentimes picked the journalists who would cover him. Jobs asked famed biographer Walter Isaacson several times to write a biography on him. According to Isaacson, early on in Steve's career... Jobs went to New York to do publicity in his role as Apple's chairman and poster boy. He had learned from his public relations consultant, Regis McKenna, how to dole out exclusive interviews in a dramatic manner. Reporters from anointed publications were ushered in sequentially for their one hour with him in his Carlisle Hotel suite, where a Lisa computer was set on a table and surrounded by cut flowers. This approach created something far greater than Apple. It created Steve Jobs. Oracle founder Larry Ellison once said, Steve created the only lifestyle brand in the tech industry. A lifestyle brand. As another writer said, Apple arguably had two world-class brands to wheel out at product launches. The Apple brand and the Steve Jobs brand. Jobs, with his visionary salesmanship, his famed temperamental outbursts, had transformed himself into a pop culture icon in the last decade. Here's a billionaire who actively promoted the use of LSD, a tech visionary who was once banned from his own company only to return to stage the greatest enterprise comeback of all time while being paid the yearly salary of $1. Jobs was an almost Shakespearean character. Journalists were intrigued by him. Who is this guy? But what if, as oftentimes happens in history, the LSD of it all has been exaggerated? During my journey, I realized I needed to keep a careful eye on Daniel Kotke. He was Steve's friend from college, one of Apple's first employees, and most importantly for this story, Steve's partner in dropping acid. Wherever Daniel would take me, I'd go. After selling a batch of computers from Paul Jobs' garage, Steve and Steve Wozniak took off to the first annual Personal Computer Festival. It was held in Atlantic City on Labor Day weekend, 1976. They brought their Apple I computer, protected by a cigar case. And you know, people say that like it's a measly thing to be carrying your prized product in, but cigar cases can be serious stuff. Anyway, Daniel met them there from New York City, where he was living at the time. As Wozniak prepared and worked on Apple II at the festival in Atlantic City, Jobs walked around the hallways And looked at the different computers. He realized then that the personal computer would, moving forward, have to be packaged all in one unit. Different parts couldn't come falling out of a cigar box. In other words, the next computer would have to, if it were to be popular, be built with a keyboard, be integrated end-to-end from the power supply to the software, and have a solid case. What I found most interesting about Steve's realization, it wasn't so much this was a critical realization which changed how Steve would look at personal computers, but instead for me, what's interesting is how Jobs got to that realization. He didn't get there on his own. He had been told this would be the future of personal computing not too long before the trip to Atlantic City. Paul Terrell, the man who ordered that first batch of computers from Steve and his team of employees in his parents' garage, had said to him that this was the future. This was interesting to me, so I stopped researching and started to walk in circles. What was interesting was that Steve had remembered what Paul said. I didn't really think there was anything to make of it, but I was just considering about how often Jobs is labeled as a genius, or a madman, or a brilliant marketer. And then there's LSD, and I'm trying to make something of that. I started to do my own unavoidable reset on this project looking through notes I had jotted down, reminding myself of themes to the story that had likely gotten lost, or finding little pieces of info on my document that's brilliantly titled Random Information You Should Use. I began to reread parts of John Markoff's biography, Ram Dass' Be Here Now, and the interviews I had done at that point. I also looked through the notes I had taken while reading the Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. I had circled a section when Isaacson, the author, is talking about Atari's founder, Nolan Bushnell. Isaacson wrote that Bushnell, quote, was a charismatic visionary with a nice touch of showmanship in him. In other words, for Steve Jobs, another role model waiting to be emulated. This got me thinking. I began to realize just how many role models Steve had learned from, or really just how many people, all sorts of people he would listen to. Bushnell would say, I taught him, as in Steve, that if you act like you can do something, then it will work. I told him, pretend to be completely in control, and people will assume that you are. But in many cases, it's not that Steve just heard something, and he used what he heard to produce immediate and tangible results. Steve had heard what Paul said about the future of computers before that festival. Steve didn't forget it. And then, when Steve began to see the future of computers at this fair... He remembered what Paul had said, and Steve was able to put it together and see the future himself. I started to think, as that wild Saturday night got less wild but more interesting, is Steve Jobs a good listener? What do I make of this? Am I tripping on acid? Go check out the live episode of the Origins podcast with special guest Sarah Jessica Parker, brought to you by the American Express Business Gold Card. To celebrate the launch of the new business Gold Card, host James Andrew Miller sits down with Sarah Jessica Parker to talk about how she turned her business idea into gold. Known as an actress and producer, she's also a serious businesswoman with advice and best practices to share. Visit www.originsthepodcast.com to listen. Steve Jobs got to a point in his life where he wanted to know who his biological parents were. He was just interested in knowing where they came from, what traits had been passed down to him. If Steve was still around and he had my number, you can almost bet your Apple stock that he would have loved 23 and Me. I've thought for a long time that at 6'2", I should not be doing this documentary podcast thing. I should really be in the NBA. Professional basketball. I can dunk. I can shoot. I can play D. Well, as it turns out, there's now proof of this. When I did my 23 and Me composition— I discovered I have the genetic muscle composition common in elite power athletes. Put me in, coach. 23andMe also pinpointed some amazing details. I'm less likely than average to be fearful of heights, which is true. I will not be getting early hair loss. So far, so true. I did used to have a nasty unibrow, which kids in middle school, Jake, I remember you, would make fun of me for. And I am 100% European, mainly from the United Kingdom. It was an incredible experience. 23andMe can help you explore where your DNA is from out of over 150 regions worldwide. And you can explore the genetics behind your appearance and senses. It's incredible. Now, through December 25th, you can get 30% off any 23andMe kit. Order your DNA kit at 23andMe.com slash W-R-H. That's the number 23 three. A-N-D-M-E dot com slash W-R-H. Again, that's 23 Me dot com slash W-R-H. Don't forget, Steve Jobs would do it. Why wouldn't you? Steve didn't just listen to people he knew and appreciated. He had been particularly interested in Zen Buddhism. And he didn't just read the books. He found a teacher in his area who he would visit often becoming a part of a small group of dedicated followers. Steve would go on retreats and to the teacher's assistant's home at night in order to learn more. His curiosity on many fronts is what I think brought Daniel Kotke into the picture. I realized when re-listening to our interview, this appreciation for curiosity was, in many ways, at the crux of their friendship.
1: Well, at Reed, he was quiet. He was quiet not particularly outgoing, but he had a curiosity and an intensity about him that I found appealing.
2: Trip Hawkins told me... Well, everybody knows that he didn't really go to school. I mean, he he didn't attend much of high school, and then he did maybe a semester of college. Clearly, he's not somebody whose learning style is from doing a lot of reading or sitting in a classroom. His learning style, and he was a prolific learner, Uh, obviously an incredibly intelligent guy who was constantly learning because he was so curious and so fascinated and so able to process and digest technologies and complexities and big ideas quickly. His learning process was through interacting with other people. And he needed to have other people to be sounding boards. And when when he discovered that he needed to know more about something, he would want to then go talk to people that... You know, could fill him in. And he was all ears.
0: So Steve had nurturing parents. He lived during the perfect time and in a near-perfect location for any kid interested in computing. He was also smart and ambitious. He listened to role models who gave good advice. And he was curious. There are direct lines between certain events in Steve's life and Apple products. One easy example is a calligraphy class Steve happened to drop in on during college. He said, If I had never dropped in on that single course in college, a calligraphy course, the Mac would have never had multiple typefaces of proportionally spaced fonts. And since Windows just copied the Mac, it's likely that no personal computer would have them. The thing is, it's hard to talk much about the actual role LSD played in Steve's life because he hardly went into any great detail about the experiences. Daniel brought up to me that Steve's LSD use really began with a book. Ram Dass's Be Here Now.
1: And once I started reading it, I found it completely fascinating. I was uh, a wide reader, but had never really been introduced to spiritual literature of any kind. And so I was walking around campus carrying that book, and I had already met Steve, but my friendship with Steve started because of that book, which is about LSD research and spirituality in India. That's really what it's about.
0: I decided to start with just seeing if I could understand what Steve Jobs was like while tripping. When speaking with Daniel, it seemed like not much happened while they were in India. From
1: Steve's point of view, his quote was, his quote many years later was, we were hoping to find a holy man who would tap us on our foreheads and we'd be
0: enlightened. And then there was this time back on the West Coast.
1: Yes, well, you know, we did it. A few times uh, on Reed campus, or once we hitchhiked out to the coast and camped out on the beach. Steve was not a hugely talkative person. So really, we had we had learned meditation by then. So uh, as a person who had psychedelics in 10th grade, where it was kind of a party thing, once I knew about chakras and meditation, astral traveling, okay, then psychedelics is a whole different experience, a much better experience. And so most of the times that I was taking psychedelics in that time frame, I was just meditating, uh, trying to develop my psychic abilities. <laughs> and I think Steve was in the same category.
0: Some have said that their time taking acid was uneventful, but that's a funny way to put it. That is the point in many ways of meditating and something talked about in Be Here Now to appreciate and embrace what we'd often consider uneventful. Steve Jobs wasn't taking acid to party. He was always asking questions and looking for new interactions. He was always traveling. He was curious about himself, looking for new ways of doing things. LSD was just one of those interactions Steve had. This was not some PR ploy or way to double down on the counterculture CEO. The more I researched, I learned LSD, in the way Steve saw it, was interwoven with spirituality. If taking LSD with the intention of understanding oneself, spirituality plays a crucial role. So I wanted to better understand the book, Be Here Now. Dr. John Amadio has been a therapist for over 35 years from the San Francisco Bay Area. Dr. Amadio is the author of several books, including Dancing with Fire, A Mindful Way to Loving Relationships.
4: My basic understanding of be here now is the practice of getting out of our heads where most of us live most of our time and we're distracted by our past thoughts. Worrying about the future, regretting things about the past, and it's difficult to just be in this moment. It's being present with you. And and, uh, It's easier said than done, however, but it's it's a practice to be in the present moment.
0: But just because you read it doesn't mean you have perfected the practice.
4: You know, there's a concept called spiritual bypassing. It's very common for people on a spiritual path to try so hard to be spiritual, to be in the present, that they miss what's actually here in the present moment which often is our human emotions our feelings we're human beings we have feelings about things you know f- feelings are the ways that life affects us we might have a background feeling of sadness or maybe embarrassment comes up in various moments so we feel angry or we feel hurt or we feel a little joy we feel happy and um, Spirituality isn't just about taking the elevator up to the penthouse. It's also taking it down into the shadow part of our being and really acknowledging the full range of our humanity, the full range of our feelings, our needs, our longings, and making room for all of that is a really essential part
0: of spiritual practice. Steve Jobs and I likely had some things in common. For instance, brushing our teeth. Now, Steve had a Wide assortment of interesting diets. So when he brushed his teeth, he likely had pieces of apples or vegetables being cleaned out. Whereas I got sugar from all that ice cream, and then there's pancakes, waffle fries, and sometimes chicken noodle soup. Anyway, there's a buzzy gift on everyone's list this year. It's something that anyone you know hopefully uses twice every day, if not more. And it was featured on Oprah's O list. I didn't know that there was such a thing, but I bet it's good. And it's perfect. For everyone with a mouth, everyone with a mouth. I don't know what the joke is there. This it gift, this buzzy gift is Quip, an electric toothbrush designed to make brushing better. And it really does. It made a big difference for me. It's one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. That's a party I want to go to. And has thousands of verified five-star reviews. I like it of all of the reasons in the world because it's simple. It's easy. It's something you don't have to think about. Quip looks like a big-ticket tech gift with a stocking stuffer price starting at just $25. And if you go to wrh right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. But you don't have to tell your gifty that. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash W-R-H. That's getquip.com slash W-R-H. The question remains, is LSD in the DNA of the Apple brand? What I've learned most from what Daniel has talked about is just how quiet things got When he and Steve were tripping on acid. It's hard to untangle the different effects Zen Buddhism and LSD had on Steve, but regardless, the result appears to be what many experience a better understanding of self and the disassociation from convention. Understanding conventions and the value they really hold doesn't necessarily mean getting in trouble with the law or some of the bigger things we may look for, like the name of a company it can come down to the smaller things in life. I was reminded of a time earlier this year when I went to the Steve Jobs building just outside of Oakland, California, where Pixar Studios is headquartered. Sometimes I forget Steve Jobs also co-founded Pixar. If nothing else, he started one of the most important movie studios in cinema history. And one of the early film directors that created some Pixar classics was Andrew Stanton. We were talking about another topic, but Steve Jobs happened to come up. Stanton remembered how, through a tiny action, Jobs changed Stanton's way of thinking. Working with Steve Jobs all the time and being in all these meetings, and one of the things, if, if he was told something or, or given something to chew on, if he didn't have an answer for it right away, if he
2: was asked something, he had no problem just sitting there forever until he did. And it was,
0: it's a very strange thing to experience. Like just letting a whole room sit there a minute's a very long time, if that's the case, yeah. um, until he had
1: something worth saying back and he got his thoughts in order. And the confidence in that, in just to think that's who he was and that's what he needed to, to do uh,
0: because he cared more about where the result was going to go than whether he was following protocol. This is what we're talking about. That LSD taught, reminded, or deeply embedded into Steve Jobs that conventions were only that. Zen Buddhism says that there is an art to space, to emptiness. That it is okay, whether in a crowded meeting or the sleek packaging of an Apple product. The be-here-now lifestyle, if you will, is something that Steve didn't exactly personify. Said Trip Hawkins, an early Apple employee who'd go on to be the founder of Electronic Arts.
2: Well, uh, Steve was very uncivilized and didn't really know how to behave, and he alienated almost everyone he came into contact with. And at the end of my first week at Apple, I went to Mike Markkula, who was really the third co-founder. He was the chairman of the board and was running marketing at that time. I, I basically went up to Mike and I said we need to do something about that. And I pointed down the hall at Steve and Mike just sort of pulled me into his office and said, look, uh, you have no idea uh, what I'm dealing with here. <laughs> and he said, look, that guy, you, know, you should have seen him a year ago or two years ago. He was barely civilized. He you know, you know, didn't have any personal hygiene. He, he didn't know how to set at, uh, the table for dinner in terms of where the fork went. You know, he just sort of painted him like he was the wild man of Borneo, which was really not that far off. And he was asking me to be kind and and compassionate and understanding and just realized that, you know, he had a lot of talent that needed to mature and develop. And I thought, all right, OK, I get it. And pretty soon after that, I, I learned some things about him. And I was often the, 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 the somewhat more sane person in the room and others that would have a hard time dealing with him they would come to me afterwards and they would say, what is the deal with that guy? And I would say to them, this, uh, this was back in the 1970s I, I was, that I was actually saying this, here's the deal. He was given up for adoption at birth. He's mad as heck at his biological parents and he's determined to make so much noise and to rise above the rest of humanity to such a great height that his biological parents see him and know their shame. And
0: he actually pulled that off. How how crazy is that? Tripp is right. Steve pulled it off, which is interesting. But compare a Zen Buddhist to this person Tripp is talking about. Aggressive, a chip on his shoulder, mad as heck. These are not the words used to describe someone who is enlightened. Dr. John Amadio, author of Dancing with Fire, A Mindful Way to Loving Relationships, said...
4: You know, it's really easy when people are on a spiritual path to adapt this identity of being a very evolved spiritual person. or That's an ideal people can cling to or cling to the ideal of becoming an enlightened person. Or maybe some people think they have become enlightened and they cling to that image. And then any kind of human emotion that comes is discordant with who they think they are or who they want to be.
0: At this point, I'm also running the risk of creating some sort of dual persona. Trip Hawkins reminded me to not look at Steve as some crazy capitalist during the day and a serene Buddhist at night.
2: The guy was really, really charming. I mean, Pied Piper caliber charming, and he could be a lot of fun to be around. You know, so much as a lot of the media has focused on him being an asshole, he could also be really funny, uh, really witty, incredibly charming,
0: and playful. It's important to note Steve always denied this idea that His adoption played such an important role, but his actions say otherwise. Said Walter Isaacson, Jobs' compulsive search for self-awareness also led him to undergo primal scream therapy. He continued, it was based on the Freudian theory that psychological problems are caused by the repressed pains of childhood. According to Elizabeth Holmes, Steve was struggling with the fact that he had been adopted. He felt that it was an issue he needed to get hold of emotionally. Greg Calhoun said he was doing a lot of soul searching about being adopted, and he talked about it with me a lot. The primal scream and the mucusless diets, he was trying to cleanse himself and get deeper into his frustration about his birth. He told me he was deeply angry about the fact that he had been given up. Trip Hawkins spoke to me about Steve's biological parents.
2: Steve's parents were very, very smart people. They met at the University of Wisconsin, where they had both been admitted to PhD programs. So, yeah, that's going to help you be smart if you're Steve. You've got parents that are really smart. Again, you, you know, IQ, uh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of that capacity is inherited. Well, he, he, he wanted to blame his father, but what we know about his father's family is his father came all the way from Syria. So here's a guy who's in the Middle East, and he decides he wants to be in a PhD program in Wisconsin. Well, right there, you think, okay, well, that's a risk taker. That's outside-the-box thinking. Again, that's something that is inherited, so he has his father perhaps to thank for that, but you know his mother, even in the seventies you know again uh, someone who's leaving home and going off to uh, a graduate school somewhere else you know these are badass parents <laughs> that that really uh, uh, really contributed to who he was, and his father's family they apparently were so economically successful in the Middle East that they owned oil refineries and controlled the price of wheat in Arabia. So these are incredible business people. And then Steve ends up uh, being adopted in a family where uh, the the father, uh, Paul Jobs, that guy was a hobbyist and a tinkerer and a great engineer. And he really took Steve under his wing and he was Steve's first mentor.
0: Trip came to a conclusion I didn't see coming.
2: This is a scientific finding about forgiveness, which is when somebody does something bad to somebody else, when the victim forgives the other person, the biggest benefit is received by the person who did the forgiving. So the victim actually gains the most benefit from forgiving the perpetrator. And if you choose, like Steve did, to just hang on to that and hold that grudge all the way to the bitter end. There are some people that think that that kind of grudge is not good for your health.
0: Added neurojournalist Maya Salovitz.
3: It is definitely the case that that what psychedelics can do is show you a different way of seeing. And the ability to see in a different way is the root of empathy. And if you can understand that your perspective is limited and that there are multiple perspectives and there are many ways of seeing, um, that can make you a kinder, more compassionate person. Now, I hear he was not exactly that, at least you was kids, Um, but um, the the possibility is there. And and that's the thing with, with these substances is that, like, it opens a possibility. It doesn't, you know, automatically change things. And you have to have room in your life to be able to actually make that change.
0: There's an intelligent LSD community out there. I've read science journals, books, you name it. Some LSD users online really get into the weeds on LSD's impact on individuals, even looking into potential impact on public figures like jobs. That's my way of saying after reading and researching quite a bit, I randomly one night came across a blog. The blog, mock it if you will, is one of the more impressive outlets that wonders about any potential direct influences LSD had on Jobs or the Apple franchise. The blog makes several points, but I found the following three most interesting. First, the writer says, Acid didn't allow me to think outside the box. It allowed me to live outside the box. To hold the world and feel the world hold me. It doesn't surprise me that Jobs put lowercase i... In front of most of Apple's product names. After all, lowercase i is an effective way to symbolize both perception through i, as in your eye, and individuality through i, the letter. Second, the blogger writes It also doesn't surprise me that the first iPod Touch was essentially the world's first touch technology, a sensory amalgamation of sight and movement, shifting realms of reality, like those that envelop the first time acid taker's ego their eye. The post ended with, well, I came to the conclusion, a self-realization, I should say, that Steve Jobs would not have invented the iPhone had he not taken LSD. My belief is that Steve Jobs, at some point in his life, decided he would give as many people across the world access to a connection, a love, an experience, so deep, as deep as he had with LSD, but through his work. Whereas a musician might write and sing for the same purpose— To create, express, connect, and evolve further with his audience, the iPhone was made as a synonym of sorts to the experience of psychedelics. It'll be interesting to see how history perceives Steve Jobs' LSD use, because with more science, more people are less judgmental about the drug. There are tragic stories of people who have used LSD, and there are also stories about science showing the benefits it can have. I think it all ultimately goes back to that Steve Jobs curiosity. Because it wasn't just what people were telling him that he was listening to, he was also keen on finding out ways to listen to himself. Said author Annie Gottlieb, any drug experience is determined far less by the drug than by what we bring to it. LSD played a role in informing how Steve tried to live his life. But Steve would have likely found a way there regardless. Because not everyone who took LSD also created so much. The writer got me thinking. As it turns out, later that night, I had to go to an Apple store on Fifth Avenue in New York City. I had dropped my iPhone down the stairs of the subway, local N train, it was brutal. I walked into the Apple store to get it fixed and was told to sit nearby and wait a few minutes. I saw a bunch of the employees wearing crisp red shirts, the Apple logo printed in white on the top right. Interestingly, I saw that the different employees had different types of bottoms black pants to patterned shorts, tight denim to a camo baggy jean. Then an Apple employee, I think his name was Justin, came to tell me that it was going to cost me a pretty penny to get the iPhone fixed or replaced. I noticed that Justin was grinning. He just seemed like he was in a good mood, which was surprising to me given it was almost 9 p.m. on a Monday. To take a brief break from the reality of just throwing away money for another phone, I asked Justin, when do you guys close? He looked up at me, grinned, and said proudly, We're open 24-7. Christmas, New Year's, forever. I looked out from where I was standing. On the second floor, I was able to see over a balcony and check out all of the customers, all races, all ages, business people to young artists. Steve Jobs once said he hoped that when you die, it doesn't just all disappear. The wisdom you've accumulated— Somehow it lives on. Perhaps that's one reason Steve Jobs refused to ever have an off-on switch for the iPhone. Maybe if Jobs' biological parents forgot him, the rest of the world never would. I woke up from my daydream at 9 p.m. at the Apple store. Justin the Apple guy looked at me. He looked at me like I was understanding what he already knew. Forever, he said once again. And then, just like that, he said... $356 with tax. That's just for the same phone, same everything, just not all of the hardware damage. I should have been carrying this around in a cigar box, I said. Justin didn't really answer or register my comment, fair enough. He just looked at the damaged phone, almost amazed that such a beautiful device was now so mangled. He began touching the phone like a baby. He started touching inside pieces he hadn't seen before, a look inside the magic. Man, he started to say. Can you imagine? This phone really got hurt. I bet it's looking at the two of us, all beat up, you know? Thinking, damn. What really happened? Next on What Really Happened, you wouldn't think one of the best basketball players in the world, Kawhi Leonard, worth well over $100 million, spends his summers in a two-bedroom apartment in San Diego. He carries a basketball in his backpack even when he's not going to the gym. He lost his dad at 16 years old, who was shot and killed at a car wash in Compton. In San Antonio, Leonard opted to live with his mom, his bedroom upstairs, and hers downstairs. They played Jenga at night over enchiladas. But in his last year with the internationally well-respected San Antonio Spurs, he suddenly cut himself off from everyone. He refused to return and found himself in Canada. What really happened?